Welcome to Atmospheric Tales, a podcast that amplifies stories and experiences related to air pollution and climate change from around the world. I'm your host Shahzad Ghani and welcome to another episode of the Atmospheric Tales podcast. On this podcast, we invite guests to discuss various themes connected to air pollution and climate change such as science, policy, journalism, activism and more. Please reach out to us if you would like to suggest episode topics, guests or be an interviewer on one of our episodes. Our contact information can be found on our website atmosphericktales.com. Our interviewer for this episode is Priyanka D'Souza. Priyanka is a PhD researcher at the Sensible City Lab at MIT. where she works on characterizing air pollution in cities using mobile monitoring and satellite imagery. Priyanka was previously a consultant at UN Environment where she deployed a low-cost air quality monitoring network for Nairobi. She has degrees in energy engineering, environmental science and business from the Indian Institute of Technology Bombay and the University of Oxford where she studied as a Rhodes scholar. Priyanka is also on the production team of this podcast. Our guest today is a senior lecturer in the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the University of Cape Coast in Ghana. His expertise includes nutritional and air pollution exposure assessment and the quantification of the effects of these exposures for maternal, perinatal and cardiovascular health through statistical modeling techniques. He has taught courses in epidemiology, biostatistics, nutrition and environmental health over the years. Most recently he has been working to deploy low cost air quality monitors in Ghana and is part of a larger group working across countries in Africa. I am excited to welcome our guest Dr. Kofi Amega. Welcome Kofi and Priyanka to this show. Thank you Shahzad. And hi Kofi, um it's lovely to have you on Atmospheric Tales. Um let's get started. My first question for you is your teaching and research activities range over such diverse topics. from nutrition to, to air quality but the common theme always seems to be public health you have been working in on public health issues for more than two decades now can you tell us how you got interested in this field okay i think you absolutely spot on i've i've been at the frontiers of this discipline for close to two decades but um how i got into public health is is funny you know um growing up i wanted to be a medical doctor so at the university all i was doing was studying to become a medical doctor but unfortunately i couldn't pass the selection interview so i had to look elsewhere but i because i wanted to be in health the obvious um discipline i wanted to delve in for a start was nutrition so i took a program a bachelor's program in nutrition i completed that and then i did a public health um nutrition and then subsequently i have stayed at the cutting edge of public health research. So that is how I got into public health. And basically I want to improve the lives of people. I want to improve the lives of the population. You know, and that is the motivation for being in the field of public health. That's amazing. You know, coming back to the present moment in this global pandemic, can you tell us about how COVID-19 has impacted your work? We know that a lot of your research involves field work and travel. It has it has impacted the work of everybody globally you know so it has indeed as you rightly pointed out most of our activities are field based we are not laboratory scientists you know even though i find myself in a department which is 
we're the mainstay of the work there is laboratory scientists. I have a small public health research group, and public health is in the field, it's not in the offices. So currently, we are not able to do any field activities. Unfortunately, we have projects that are due to start, but unfortunately, we are not able to send any research assistants out there to go and collect any data or to go and do some follow-ups for us. Um, secondly, the, the local censoring networks that we've been deploying has also come to a halt because, again, we are not able to go onto the foot to go check on the monitors to mount new ones because some of the areas are in lockdown. You know? So it has impacted it. But in all this, we need to find opportunities and continue to be active. And um, I think in terms of collaboration with people, Zoom has become very helpful, you know, so we are still able to collaborate with our partners out there. But the field work has been impacted, you know, so we basically work in, and we do a lot of um, desk work as well. We've been doing a lot of systematic reviews and meta-analysis where we try to summarize the evidence on some very hot or topical public health issues. So mainly that is what we've been doing currently. We've been writing commentaries. We've been contributing to discussions on radios and TVs. So that is our outreach activities. So that has not been impacted greatly, but the third work is suffering. So we're just hoping COVID-19 will be history very soon, and then we can get back to our public health business. Yeah, no, I, I, I can't even imagine how this must, have be, this must be disrupting your monitoring work. I'm going to get to your air quality monitoring work later. We have, we have lots of questions about, you know, the monitoring network that you've set up in Ghana. But before getting to that, like, it would be really nice if you could tell our listeners how you made the transition from nutrition and studying the role of nutrition in public health to air pollution. Well, I wouldn't say I have transitioned from nutrition to, to air pollution research. I mean, I'm still marrying the two. Um, my work is at the interface of nutrition and environmental health exposures for health outcomes. So we sit at the interface. And the environmental health, our main focus has been on air pollution. So we try to look at interactions between nutrition and air pollution. We try to look at how, for example, nutrition will ameliorate the effect of air pollution exposure on health outcomes. So I haven't transitioned, you know, I do both. I mean, you look at my, uh, my research um, works out there, you see I have a huge um, nutrition component and I also have a very huge air pollution component. So I haven't transitioned. Um, but the key question is that how, how did I um, for example, decided I started off as a nutritionist. How did I decide to bring in air pollution into my, my research portfolio? It was simple. I mean, um, you know, when I got, I first got an appointment at this university to be a researcher and then subsequently transitioned to become a university lecturer. You know, um, because I come from a public health background, one of the courses that I was offered to teach at undergraduate level was human ecology. And human ecology draws similarities with public health. But I realized that it has a lot of environmental components. So I said, okay. So as I started to look, and I started to look around, and I started to see how air pollution and mothers are using charcoal and all those stuff to cook, then I started to think, no, there must be some strong exposures from the use of these fuels in cooking. And of course, it's going to be impacting maternal health. So that is when I started to gradually get into the air pollution arena. 
But of course, I want to be different from every other air pollution researcher. I want to be different from every other nutritional researcher. So I decided that, okay, then I'll marry the two. And then look at what evidence we can gather from both disciplines to improve and also protect public health. Can you tell us more about how, it, how you've married the two? Like, it, have you married the two in terms of the outcomes that you've looked at? Like, what are the insights that you've managed to glean by, um, by, by working at the intersection of air quality and nutrition? For example, if we are looking at pure nutrition research, where we are trying to investigate some nutritional exposures on some health phenomenon, what we try to do is that we try to look at, let's say, how air pollution plays in order in the relationship. So we either trying to control for the effect of air pollution. Because you see, one thing we need to understand in our environment here is that nutrition has a strong effect on health outcomes because we live in a setting whereby there's high levels of undernutrition, you know, high levels of child undernutrition, high levels of maternal undernutrition. We also live in an environment where we have high levels of air pollution, especially from the household environment. So you need to understand that these two exposures are competing, you know. So when you are looking for, um, you are looking at the effect of one exposure on the other, then it's important that you need to also look at how the other exposure impacts um, the relationship. So traditionally in epidemiology, what we say is that we try to control for the effect of the other. But besides, we can also look at the interactive effect. I mean, how does nutrition and air pollution interact? To, is it a synergistic um, um, relationship or antagonistic? So we try to do, do that as well. So in, our, in the research that we have done, you look at some of the early things that I do, even one of the mainstay of my PhD, the main constituencies of my PhD, where we try to look at nutrition, indoor air pollution, and also socioeconomic status on pregnancy outcomes. So in fact, that has always been the guiding principles of our work in my group here. Now, we are always mindful of the fact that there are nutritional exposures, there are air pollution exposures, and also there are even socioeconomic um, um, inequalities. So we try to factor all those in, in the relationships that we try to examine. In recent times, what we have been trying to do, and we have a few research that are starting um, recently, is we are trying to look at how nutrition ameliorate the effect of air pollution exposure, especially traffic-related air pollution exposure. Um, street vendors is a population that have studied, have studied extensively. And you realize that they are always in the middle of the street selling. They are exposed to high levels of air pollution. And this is a very complex mixture of air pollutants that are exposed to. So what we want to do is that there has to be an intervention. I mean, the obvious intervention is to getting these women to stop working on the street, but that is a near impossibility. It means there have to be a safety net for them, and there is no safety net on the government part. So what we want to do is that we want to see whether there is some evidence to suggest that if we are able to improve their nutritional status, then of course it's going to cut back on the air pollution um, um, exposure effects. You know. So that is what we are starting, and it's a novel hypothesis. Um, it's now starting to emerge in the discipline, and that is something that we have been start trying to look at uh, quite recently. 
That is fascinating. I mean, looking at the intersection of these two things, that's incredible. I'm sure that to understand the impact of air pollution, we first need to measure it. So what does the air pollution measurement infrastructure in Ghana look like? The, the measurement infrastructure, I would say, is very weak. It is very weak, as it is in several other sub-Saharan African countries, and by extension, other developing countries. I mean, we don't have ground monitors. We have very limited ground monitors, you know, and all these equipment are very obsolete as well. They are very old, and so they break down frequently. And they are restricted to some selected geographical areas. For example, the ground monitors that we have in Ghana is only restricted to Accra, the capital city. If you move outside Accra, there are no ground monitors there. And these equipment are very cold, you know. And again, they are sparsely distributed. So we don't have very fine data. So it's a challenge. It's a challenge getting measurement to undertake air pollution health effects research. And again, another challenge that we have here is that unlike the West, where you can easily assess the air pollution data, here is very difficult. We don't have access to the data as researchers. When you approach the regulatory agencies that you want to assess the air pollution data for health research, it becomes a long story. It becomes a political talk. You know? So the key question we have here is that we are saddled. We don't have the evidence to be able to convince governments that air pollution is a challenge, it's a problem. So they need to put in an intervention. Because we cannot bring evidence from Europe and North America to come and influence policy here. You study air pollution at both the household and the ambient level. Um, Can you help our listeners understand how these two are different in terms of uh, sources and both exposure in urban and rural environments of the different countries that you've worked in? So, so basically, when we talk about household air pollution, previously, the terminology used to be indoor air pollution. So when you say household air pollution, basically what you are trying to say is that people are using wood, charcoal, coal, and other crop residues and agricultural residues to cook. And when they cook with these fuels, it generates a lot of smoke. More importantly, they are using very rudimentary equipment, very rudimentary cooking devices, like the three-stone cooker and all those stuff. So it generates a lot of smoke. And that smoke that emanates from the cooking process is what we term the household air pollution. And this smoke has the same constituents as what is found in the ambient environment. So it has particulate matter, it has carbon monoxide, it has... um, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbon, plus other other cancerous um, carcinogens in there. But again, um, in the household, you also have people who are burning waste. Because the problem we also have in our part of the world here is that we are always inundated with waste because we don't have proper waste collection services here. So you have households who are burning with waste and they don't have anything to do with the waste rather than burning them in the immediate compound of the household. So that also generates smoke. And that also generates smoke in the household. So that is also a component of the household air pollution. But this, this smoke, this smoke from the burning of the waste also contains dioxins and furans, which are normally not found in the ambient environment. 
So when you come to the ambient um, environment, so the sources are traffic, which is also a major problem here because virtually everybody has car, especially in the city. Uh, we don't have very good public transport, so everybody virtually have to drive their cars to work. We don't have um, bicycle lanes, we don't have walking lanes here, so nobody will even contemplate buying a bicycle to ride to work, you know, or walking to work. Because walking to work, all the sidewalks have been taken over by street vendors. So traffic pollution is one of the main sources in the ambient environment. Besides traffic pollution, because about 70 to 80% of the population uses charcoal and wood to cook, household air pollution is also a major contributor of ambient air pollution. And I think um, Pallavi and his people at Health Effects Institute recently did a study in Ghana where they found household air pollution to be a major contributor of ambient levels. So household air pollution is also a major contributor. Besides, there is also a large um, commercial cooking, you know, in, in the cities. And they use charcoal and wood, and also that also contributes. Our roads here are unpaved. You know, most of the roads in our neighborhood are unpaved. And so you have dust pollution as well, which is mainly PM10. So we have very complex mixture of air pollution coming from different sources in the ambient environment. I even forgot to mention poor waste management. Because we have poor waste management, some of the landfill sites are always being burnt. You have people who go in there to scavenge, and then they have to burn things there. So that all goes to contribute to ambient air pollution. So we have a complex mixture of air pollution here. I'm sure it's much, much um, somehow different from the air pollution mixtures in, in Europe and North America. That's really interesting. You have been involved in deploying low-cost sensors uh, in cities in Ghana to, to understand and measure ambient air pollution. Uh, low-cost sensors have become very popular in the past few years, and people are viewing this as an opportunity to, to deploy such networks um, in low- and middle-income countries. Can you tell us more about the work that you are doing with these sensors and the role that these devices can play? How did I get into low-cost sensors? Um, so we went for a meeting at WHO, and then there was this talk about low-cost sensors, and then there were some groups that came from Taiwan, and they started to demonstrate these low-cost sensors. So I got fascinated by low-cost sensors. The reason why I got fascinated, and I already I was in the discipline of air pollution, trying to do some budget research here where we are trying to use indirect measurements um, for research. So I got fascinated. And the reason why I got fascinated was simple. That how can we deploy these low-cost sensors in neighborhoods of, of Africa, you know, in communities in Africa, in Ghana and other African countries, so that we can have very rich air pollution data for health research. And once we have this evidence, then of course we can start to approach governments that listen, air pollution indeed is a killer. So you have to do something about it. So the first thing I did was that I wrote a policy paper, which was titled Proliferation of Local Senses, What Prospect for Air Pollution Epidemiological Research in Sub-Saharan Africa. So here in this paper, simply what I tried to do is that I tried to weigh the benefits and then the limitations of low-cost sensors, and then try to put sides whether it's indeed very good 
for air pollution epidemiological research in sub-Saharan Africa. We have been at the forefront of deploying a lot of low-cost sensors in Ghana. I think currently we have deployed close to about 20 low-cost sensors in Accra, in Tema, in Takrade, in Cape Coast, in Kumase, and um, very soon we'll be taking a few to the north. If it wasn't because of this COVID-19, we could have still continued to spread our tentacles. And the objectives of this um, deployment is, is simple. The objectives is one, we wanted to create public awareness, you know, with this data. You know, we want to go out there, do a, a community advocacy. We want to go out there into the community and inform people that, listen, this is the air pollution levels in your neighborhood. You have to do something about it. And doing something about it starts with you. It's not all the time that we can look up to government to come and do something about it. So you can minimize the use of um, charcoal and wood for cooking. You can start to walk to work. You know, you can start to buy, you can buy some bicycles and ride so that you minimize use of um, your vehicles. You don't also have to burn um, waste in your neighborhoods as well. So the first objective was to try and do some community advocacy with the data that we'll get from this monitoring network. The other thing, like I said, is that we want to get very fine data, ubiquitous data, which we can use for air pollution research. You know, one of the main limitations of air pollution studies is exposure misclassification. They are more like semi-ecologic studies. So you pick, um, um, you pick one ground monitor here, and then you assign the exposures to people that live about two kilometers away from the sensor or the, the ground monitor. So again, what you realize is that the exposures are not well assigned to the individuals. But the beauty about the low-cost sensors is that they are very cheap and you can deploy them as a dense network. So you have very fine data. So that is what we are trying to do so that, again, we can have some very fine data and then we can use that to do health research. And then the evidence that we get from that, we can use that to inform policy. So those are the two main objectives of the project, which we have in mind. That's, that's really interesting. You know, I just wanted to, uh, to go off one of the things that you mentioned earlier. Um, you said that in this article that you wrote about low-cost sensors, you, you weighed the pros and cons. For our listeners' benefit, could you also expand a little bit about the limitations of uh, these devices? So, you know, these devices depend on the environment in which they are being operated. You know, so for example, here where we have very humid environment, very hot and humid, these devices do not operate optimally. You know, even though they have been tested in, in, in North America and been found to be very good, the environment in which they have been tested is different from the environment here where we are using them. So they are very humid, temperatures are very high here, and that affects the the operation of the sensors. So that is one of the main limitations. So we need to look at devices that can work very well in our environment here. And now there is a boom of low-cost sensors. You have several research groups all over the world who are trying to develop sensors for use. Some are giving them out freely. Some are selling them very cheap, you know. And because we have measurement limitations here, 
everything that is out there, we want to get them in use. So it's very important that we get sensors that are promising, you know, which are able to work in the very rough environments that we have here. Besides that, operating them on the field itself is a challenge. You know, you need Wi-Fi services. You need power. You know, just before we, we started this interview, there was a power cut here, you know, and I had to go room around for about 30 minutes. Luckily, the power is back on. So this also destabilizes the sensor. So it means there could be periods where we have no data due to the power cut. And also you need uninterrupted Wi-Fi services for you to operate these sensors. And in some of the areas, we don't have Wi-Fi. So we have to try and improvise, you know, and get Wi-Fi for the equipment. And even where you have the Wi-Fi, again, our Wi-Fi connectivity here is very poor. And sometimes because it relies on power and we have frequent power cards, often the machines do not have access to Wi-Fi. And that means it cannot upload data onto the server. So those are other challenges that we have in operating the sensors here. Yeah, I think those are really important points which are not uh, spoken about enough. So thank you for that. You already, I mean, it's incredible that you already have 20 of these devices set up in different, in different parts of Ghana. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about how uh, the data from these devices have fed into the, into the community advocacy piece that you were speaking about. And um, in addition to your work with the community, has, have you found policymakers engaging um, with the findings from, from your work and from these sensors? So what we are doing in this community with this data has just started. Um, we are trying to pull together some volunteers, student volunteers, because, I mean, one thing is that the project has no funding. I have to emphasize. It's a good initiative, but unfortunately, the project has no funding. So we are just relying on the benevolence of people like Dabi Jack, who is based at Columbia University, who has been giving us the purple essences for us to deploy. And then also some funding from my packet, which is used for deploying them on site and also getting people to go and check on the functionality of the census. But what we want to do is that, as I said, one of the key objectives of the project is to raise public awareness about the dangers of air pollution so that the citizen can act accordingly to protect their health. So we are starting to pull together some student volunteers whom we want to use in the communities to go and advocate for behavioral changes. But the starting point is that all the data is open access, you know? So we make a lot of noise on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, on Ghana handles, various Ghana handles. We've been on radio a few times to talk about a project and how people can have access to the data and know that, for example, if I live in this neighborhood and I'm asthmatic, you can look at the data and say, oh, today the air pollution levels are very bad, so I need to stay indoors. But we need to get into the communities so that people know what we are doing. And even besides that, people start to realize that air pollution is a problem. Air pollution could be a cause of some of the health outcomes, weird, weird health outcomes that we are seeing. And even if we are not seeing the data, there are a few things we can do in the communities to cut back on air pollution levels. So we are starting to pull together some student volunteers because of the COVID that has also grounded to a halt. But once the COVID crisis is over, we are going to get volunteers into all the communities, especially in Accra, where we have 
a lot of the senses. And there is a lot of, Accra has a very large slum neighborhood. And this slum neighborhood is where household air pollution levels are very high and are very dangerous levels. And that also comes to impact the ambient level. So that is the plans we have. We haven't started, we are not yet in the communities, but hopefully when the COVID crisis is, is over, we're gonna get student volunteers into the communities. And they're gonna be doing this work without any remuneration, but as part of their studies in the university. So that is how we wanna get around it so that we don't have to go look for funds which are non-existent to come and support the project. In terms of policy engagement, in fact, I have to emphasize that the Accra Metropolitan Assembly, you know, which is the city authority, is on board this project. And in fact, we have one of our sensors. We have a purple air sensor, and we also have a ramp sensor on top of City Hall. So the project has a policy, enjoys some policy support from the Accra Metropolitan Assembly. And we have been engaging them that we want to start to speak to the Ministry of Environment to see how they can support the project so that we can roll it out across the country. You know? But one thing I need to emphasize, Priyanka, is that researchers also need needs to have business acumen. You know, I think that is what we lack. We need to understand that the research we do, we are coming out with products and we need to sell the products. If you publish an article, it's a research product. And that product needs to be sellable. That is one thing we are unable to do. We are not able to sell our product. And who are the buyers of our research product? They are the policymakers. So we need to be able to engage the policymakers with our product so that it can influence policy. Once it influences policy, then of course, it's going to make public health impact. But largely, we publish, we, we do nice research. We are interested in publishing them in high, for, high impact forums. Mindset, nature, environmental health perspective, and that is where it ends. We don't take that extra step to make sure that the policymakers, and especially in the research setting where the research, the evidence emanates from, is being put to use. So, just to add up, we also need to have that business acumen as researchers so that we can sell our research product. And that is the only way we can impact public health and also improve the lives of the people. It's, it's a shame that research done in Ghana and in other parts of Africa is so, is so underfunded. You work on, on, the most, on some of the most challenging problems of our time. I'm sure your journey has been challenging. How do you keep yourself motivated in this process? It's not easy, you know, Priyanka. It's not easy keeping yourself motivated, especially when research here is underfunded, as you correctly put it. Here's a challenge. You know, we have so, so many novel ideas. We are seeing a lot of things in the communities that we want to investigate, from air pollution to nutrition to socioeconomic inequalities. We are seeing so many that we want to investigate and get some evidence to improve the lives of the people. But unfortunately, we are not able to compete with people out there for grants. I mean, recently we've applied for two or three NIH grants. We've been turned down, you know. That's not to say um, you put in an application and automatically you should be given the grant. It, should, it doesn't work like that. 
But I think there needs to be some money that is recognized for African research. And the African Academy of Sciences is doing that brilliantly, you know, where they are trying to support African researchers, you know, with grants. And even that is very competitive to get. So to answer your question, trying to motivate yourself in the midst of limited research funding is difficult. But every day, what motivates me is the lives of street vendors, the lives of pregnant women, the lives of children under five whom I see every day living in poverty, living in squalor, um, exposed to several environmental pathogens, poor nutritional status. And I see this every day in the corners where I sit, in the corners where I live, the places where I drive to, I see it every day. And that motivates me to do my little bit to help to improve the lives of these people. And the only way I can improve their lives is to do cutting-edge research to influence policy, to influence community decisions, to impact community advocacy. So that is what motivates me every day. Thank you so much um, for sharing your work um, with us today. Thank you so much. Everything that you do is so important. And we're just really honored to have you on Atmospheric Tales. I also want to thank you for the opportunity to be part of this initiative. With that, I would like to thank our guest, Kofi Omega, and our interviewer, Priyanka D'Souza, for joining us on this episode of Atmospheric Tales. Thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. You can listen to this podcast directly on our website or on all major podcast hosting services such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Atmos Tales for updates on new episodes and more. Make sure to subscribe and share.